Welcome back to the Hemingway List, the best podcast ever. Talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 14. Does Philip just need to believe harder? Bit of a bit of a troll question this week, but Fix the Blue says, I wonder what the long-term effect on his faith is. Sorry, I wonder what the long-term effect on his faith this incident will have. Initially, it seemed to drive him to be more faithful. Then later, he seems to be giving up on the fact that faith can heal his club foot, leading him to question the meaning of the Bible and his uncle, the vicar's words. I suppose the hope that Philip had whilst believing is the driving force for a lot of people's faith. What I can't understand about religion is the following. But he always felt that his prayers were more pleasing to God when he said them under conditions of discomfort. The coldness of his hands and the feet were an offering to the Almighty. Why would that be the case? Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird thing, eh? Um, he'll start lashing himself on the back soon. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lashing. Uh, I think the saddest thing about this is what Andrew Lewis said on the podcast yesterday about how a club foot is easily rectified in our current time and the solution isn't even serious or invasive. Poor Philip. I say that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's like the mantra of this book. Poor Philip. Acoustic Eels says, egg count, six. Six eggs. Was there another egg in this chapter? Did I miss an egg? Damn. Sounds like someone's going to be an atheist real soon here. You reckon, Acoustic Eels? Well, you know, you'd think so. But, you know, then they have the whole thing about testing your faith. All right, whenever your faith is tested, they've got a little, they've got a thing that they say for that. You know, so that that background is covered. Um, and usually it just ends up in them redoubling down, doesn't it? Although... Don't we already know that the author was an atheist? Wasn't that in his bio? And it's roughly autobiographical, so maybe that's a bit of a spoiler just in that we know about the author. But I suppose it's only semi-autobiographical, so maybe, you know, maybe he goes a different road. David Anchio says, It's funny how the vicar has always the simplest answers to religious questions. Same way some chapters... uh, Same way some chapters ago... You cannot sit on the Bible, so throw the prayer book on top and you're good to go. Or when saying the devil can also quote the Bible. It's definitely hard seeing Philip struggle as much, so much with his club foot. I wonder if he'll ever resort to medicine or physical therapies available at the time, although they'll probably be as successful as his current approach. Ander, you're welcome. Thanks for taking the time to acknowledge supporters. Oh, thank you for being a supporter, David. Um bloody excellent having you on board i haven't seen many comments from you in the subreddit have you have i have you have i i don't think i've seen your name much around anyway um welcome <laughs> make more comments the more the merrier hey i am norwegian said yet another sad chapter there's something especially depressing about religious people who have had their faith have have made their faith into their profession and yet find themselves completely unable to do anything but wave difficult questions away with literalism. It's not like the gospel is a constant stream of similes, metaphors, and parables. If you can't even handle inquisitive children, then what are you doing? That's how you kill someone's religiosity. I also have an impression that this chapter is representative of most religious teachers, which makes the prevailing views on religion among young people completely understandable. I was also reminded of this beautiful song from the Prince of Egypt when Philip stumbled over the quote, about moving mountains. 
And there's a link there to, I presume, a song from the movie Prince of Egypt. Let's have a look. Is it the cartoon? Oh, it is the cartoon. When You Believe song. Alright. Let's read the next chapter, shall we? I'm ready. I'm ready. Chapter 15. Jeez, we're cruising through this book. Goes like this. The King's School at Turkenbury, to which Philip went when he was 13, prided itself on its antiquity. It traced its origin to an abbey school founded before the conquest, where the rudiments of learning were taught by Augustine monks, and like many other establishments of this sort, on the destruction on the monasteries it had been reorganised by the office, what? by the officers of King Henry XIII, and thus acquired its name. Since then, pursuing its modest course, it had given to the sons of the local gentry and the professional people of Kent an education sufficient to their needs. One or two men of letters, beginning with a poet, then whom only Shakespeare had a more splendid genius, and ending with a writer of prose whose view of life has affected profoundly the generation of which Philip was a member, had gone forth from its gates to achieve fame. It had produced one or two eminent lawyers, but eminent lawyers are common, and one or two soldiers of distinction, but during the three centuries since its separation from the monastic order, it had trained especially men of the church, bishops, deans, canons, and above all country clergymen. There were boys in the school whose fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers had been educated there and had all been rectors of parishes of the diocese of Turkenbury, and they came to it with their minds made up already to be ordained. But there were signs notwithstanding that even their changes were coming for a few repeating what they had heard at home said that the church was no longer what it used to be it wasn't so much mo the money but the class of people who went in for it weren't the same and two or three boys knew curates whose fathers were tradesmen they'd rather go out to the colonies in those days the colonies were still the last hope of those who could get nothing to do in england than be a curate under some chap who wasn't a gentleman at king's school as at blackstable vicarage a tradesman was anyone who was not lucky enough to own land. And here a fine distinction was made between the gentleman farmer and the landowner, or did not follow one of the four professions to which it was possible for a gentleman to belong. Among the day boys, of whom there were about a hundred and fifty, sons of the local gentry and of the men stationed at the depot, those whose fathers were enraged, engaged in business, were made to feel the degradation of their state. The masters had no patience with modern ideas of education, which they read of sometimes in the Times and the Guardian, and hoped fervently that the king's school would remain true to its old traditions. The dead languages were taught with such thoroughness that an old boy seldom thought of Homer or Virgil in afterlife without a qualm of boredom, and though in the common room at dinner one or two bolder spirits suggested that, that mathematics were the, of increasing importance, the general feeling was that they were a less noble study than the classics. Neither German nor chemistry was taught, and French only by the form masters. They could keep order between sorry, they could keep order better than a foreigner, and since they knew the grammar as well as any Frenchman, it seemed unimportant that none of them could have got a cup of coffee in the restaurant at Boulogne unless the waiter had known a little English. Geography was taught chiefly by making boys draw maps, and this was a favourite occupation, especially when the country dealt with the mount with was mountainous. 
It was possible to waste a great deal of time in drawing the Andes or the Apennines. The masters, graduates of Oxford or Cambridge, were ordained and unmarried. If by chance they wished to marry, they could only do so by accepting one of the smaller livings at the disposal of the chapter. But for many years, none of them had cared to leave the refined society of Turkenbury, which, owing to the cavalry depot, had a martial as well as an ecclesiastical tone for the monotony of life in the country rectory, and they were now all men of middle age. The headmaster, on the other hand, was obliged to be married, and he conducted the school till age began to tell upon him. When he retired, he was rewarded with a much better living than any of the undermasters could hope for, and an honorary canonry. But a year before Philip entered the school, a great change had come over it. It had been obvious for some time that Dr. Fleming, who had been headmaster for the quarter of a century, was become too deaf to continue his work to the greater glory of God, and when one of the livings on the outskirts of the city fell vacant, with a stipend of six hundred a year, the chapter offered it to him in such a manner as to imply that they thought it high time for him to retire. He could nurse his ailments comfortably as on such an income. Two or three curates had hoped for preferment, told their wives it was scandalous to give a parish that needed a young, strong and energetic man to an old fellow with who knew nothing of parochial work and had feathered his nest already. But the mutterings of the unbeneficed clergy do not reach the ears of the cathedral chapter, and as for the parishioners, they had nothing to say in the matter, and therefore nobody asked for their opinion. The Wesleyans and the Baptists both had chapel in the village. When Dr. Fleming was thus disposed of, it became necessary to find a successor. It was contrary to the traditions of the school that one of the lower masters should be chosen. The common room was unanimous in desiring the election of Mr. Watson, headmaster of the preparatory school. He could hardly be described as already a master of King's School. They had all known him for twenty years, and there was no danger that he would make a nuisance of himself. But... The chapter sprang a surprise on them. It chose a man called Perkins. At first, nobody knew. Oops. At first, nobody knew. Where did I just lost my spot? At first, nobody knew who Perkins was, and the name favorably impressed no one. But before the shock of it had passed away, it was realized that Perkins was the son of Perkins, the line draper, linen draper. From Fleming informed the masters just before dinner, and his ma manner showed his consternation. Such of them as were dining in ate their meal almost in silence, and no reference was made to the matter till the servants had left the room. Then they set to. The names of those present on the occasion are unimportant, but they had... <laughs> that, oh, that's the unimportant bit. Got it. Um, the names of those presents on this occasion are unimportant, but they had been known to generations of schoolboys as size, tar, winks, squirts, and pat. They all knew Tom Perkins. The first thing about him was that he was not a gentleman. They remembered him quite well. He was a small, dark boy with untidy black hair and large eyes. He looked like a gypsy. He had come to the school as a day boy with the best scholarship on their endowment, so, this, so that his education had cost him nothing. Of course he was brilliant. At every speech day he was loaded with prizes. He was their showboy, and they remembered now bitterly their fear that he would try to get some scholarship at one of the larger public schools and so pass out of their hands. Dr. Fleming had gone to the linen draper, his father. They all remembered the shop, Perkins and Cooper in St. Catherine Street, and said he hoped Tom would remain with them 
till he went on to Oxford. The school was Perkins and Cooper's best customer. And Mr Perkins was only too glad to give the required assurance. Tom Perkins continued to triumph. He was the finest classical scholar that Dr Fleming remembered and on leaving the school took him took with him the most valuable scholarship they had to offer. He got another at Magdalene and settled down to a brilliant career at the university. The school magazine recorded the distinctions he achieved year after year and when he got his trouble his double first Dr Fleming himself wrote a few words of eulogy on the front page. It was with greater satisfaction that they welcomed his success since Perkins and Cooper had fallen upon evil days. Cooper drank like a fish and just before Tom Perkins took his degree, the linen drapers filed their petition in bankruptcy. In due course, Tom Perkins took holy orders and entered upon the profession for which he was so absolutely suited. He had been an assistant master at Wellington and then at rugby. But there was quite a difference between welcoming his success at other schools and serving under his leadership in their own. Tar was had frequently given him lines and squirts had boxed his ears. They could not imagine how the chapter had made such a mistake. No one could be expected to forget that he was the son of a bankrupt linen draper and the alcoholism of Cooper seemed to increase the disgrace. I was understood that the dean had supported his candidature with zeal, so the dean would probably ask him to dinner. But would the pleasant little diners in the precincts ever be the same when Tom Perkins sat at the table? And what about the depot? He he really could not expect officers and gentlemen to receive him as one of themselves. It would do the school incalculable harm. Parents would be dissatisfied and no one could be surprised if there were wholesale withdrawals. And then their indignity of calling him Mr. Perkins, the masters thought by way of protest of sending in their regiments as a body, in a body, but the uneasy fear that they would be accepted with equanimity restrained them. The only thing is to prepare ourselves for changes, said Size, who had conducted the fifth form for five and twenty years with unparalleled incompetence. And when they saw him... And when they saw him, they were not reassured. Dr. Fleming invited them to meet him at luncheon. He was now a man of 32, tall and lean, but with the same wild and unkempt look they remembered on him as a boy. His clothes, ill-made and shabby, were put on untidily. His hair was black as long as ever, and he had plainly never learned to brush it. It fell over his forehead with every gesture, and he had a quick movement of the hand with which he pushed it back from his eyes. He had a black moustache and a beard, which came high up on his face, almost to the cheekbones. He talked to the masters quite easily, as though he had parted from them a week or two before. He was evidently delighted to see them. He seemed unconscious of the strangeness of the position, and appeared not to notice any oddness in being addressed as Mr. Perkins. When he bade them goodbye, one of the masters, for something to say, remarked that he was allowing himself plenty of time to catch this his train. I want to go round and have a look at the shop, he answered cheerfully. There was a distinct embarrassment. They wondered that he could be so tactless, and to make it worse, Dr. Fleming had not heard what he said. His wife shouted it in his ear. He wants to go round and look at his father's old shop. Old Tom Perkins was unconscious of the humiliation which the whole party felt. He turned to Mrs. Fleming. Who's got it now, do you know? She could hardly answer. She was very angry. It's still a linen draper's, she said bitterly. 
Grove is the name. We don't deal there anymore. I wonder if he'd let me go over the house. I expect he would if you explain who you are. It was not till the end of dinner that, that evening that any reference was made in the common room to the subject that was in all of their minds. Then it was Sires who asked, Well, what did you think of our new head? They thought of the conversation at luncheon. It was hardly a conversation. It was a monologue. Perkins had talked incessantly. He talked very quickly with a flow of easy words and in a deep resonant voice. He had a short, odd little laugh which showed his white teeth. They had followed him with difficulty for his mind darted from subject to subject with a connection they did not always catch. He talked of pedagogics and this was natural enough but he had much to say of modern theories in Germany which they had never heard of and received with misgiving. He talked of the classics but he had been to Greece, and he discoursed of archaeology. He had once spent a winter digging. They could not see how that helped a man to teach boys to pass examinations. He talked of politics. It sounded odd to them to hear him compare Lord Beaconsfield with Alcibiades. He talked of Mr. Gladstone and Home Rule. They realised that he was a liberal. Their hearts sank. He talked of German philosophy and of French fiction. They could not think a man profound whose interests were so diverse. It was Winks who summed up the general impression and put it into a form they all felt conclusively damning. Winks was the master of the upper third, a weakened, kneed man with drooping eyelids. He was too tall for his strength, and his movements were slow and languid. He gave an impression of lassitude, lassitude and his nickname was eminently appropriate. He's very enthusiastic, said Winks. Enthusiasm was ill-bred, enthusiasm was ungentlemanly. They thought of the Salvation Army with its spraying trumpets and its drums. Enthusiasm meant change. They had goose flesh when they thought of all the un, all the pleasant old habits which stood in imminent danger. They hardly dared to look forward to the future. He looks more like a gypsy than ever, said one after a pause. I wonder if the dean and chapter knew that he was a radical when they elected him, another observed bitterly. But conversation halted. They were too much disturbed words when Tar and Sires were walking together to the chapter house on speech day a week later Tar, who had a bitter tongue remarked to his colleagues well we've seen a good many speech days here haven't we i wonder if we shall see another Sires was more melancholy than usual if anything worth having comes along in the way of a living i don't mind where when i retire okay there you go another chapter down i think I think I'm reading the right book. I don't know who any of those characters were or what any of that meant. So we're going to have to have a conversation about that chapter for sure. Uh, have your say over at the subreddit. I'm going to leave some very sarcastic discussion prompts because <laughs> this was a uh, this was a bad chapter, and I'm feeling sarcastic about it. <clears throat> so <laughs> enjoy that. Patreon.com/slash the Hemingway List if you want to donate or support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.